Well, this morning, uh, we're going to be continuing our series through the book of Acts. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1, uh, we'll be in verses 12 through 26 this morning, the back half of uh, chapter 1 here. And last week, our, our guest preacher, Alex Kochman, uh, did a great job of opening up the beginning of Acts 1 and explaining for us the meaning and the significance of Jesus' ascension into heaven. And now as we meet uh, the same crowd this morning in our text, we meet them right where the beginning of chapter 1 leaves us off, standing on the Mount of Olives after witnessing Jesus ascend into heaven. So if you would, uh, look at your Bibles with me, and uh, we'll read this text and see what God would have for us in his word this morning. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a keldelma, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these you two which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. And I would invite you to pray with me now that he would teach it to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning as people who are spiritually impoverished, as people who know that we cannot pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. So God, this morning, I pray that you would give us grace. Help us by your spirit to understand your word, Lord, and help us to see Jesus, the one who makes the universe turn and center around himself. And as we see him, I pray that you would bring us into your plan to reach the nations with the gospel. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we can all remember a time in our lives 
when everything felt like it was in transition. When everything that we felt like we had known up until that point was in flux. Maybe uh, as I say this, you're thinking of a significant move that you had or a career change. Maybe it's having a baby or moving from one baby to two babies or for another stage of life, seeing your children go off to college, maybe get married and have children of their own. And some of you may be experiencing uh, two or three or most of those transitions at the same time this morning, and you feel like your life is nothing but change and transition. Well, this passage in the book of Acts and the entire book as a whole is about transition. It's the biggest time of transition in the history of the world. A new age is dawning. The time of Jesus' earthly presence with his followers is over. And the time of the Spirit and the church are just beginning. And if this is the case in the entire book of Acts, then I would argue that in this passage that we're studying this morning, this takes place in the most uh, concrete way. It's the most transitional passage in the entire book of Acts. You see, this this passage is not like just the general time when you move from one house to another. So it's not the whole time where you pack up all your stuff, you settle on your current house, you settle on the house that you're buying, you move, and you get into your new house. This passage is like those few days after you have all your stuff packed up and you're sleeping on air mattresses on the living room floor and eating Chinese takeout. That's what this passage is like. See, Jesus has promised his spirit and ascended into heaven. And yet the spirit does not come upon his disciples until 10 days later at Pentecost. And so in the meantime, they are waiting for the spirit to come upon them. These, I would argue, are probably 10 of the most unique days in the history of the Bible And yet in these 10 days of transition, God's purposes were still being worked out. And we see that in the text that we have before us this morning. And so let's, uh, let's dive into it and see what we can learn about what God was doing in this time of transition. So like I said before, as we meet uh, the apostles and the followers of Jesus here, they're on the Mount of, Mount of Olives after Jesus has ascended into heaven. And after he departs, they go on this Sabbath day's journey uh, back home, which a Sabbath day's journey uh, was about, it was less than a mile. Um, so according to Jewish oral tradition, which said how much you could walk on the Sabbath, it was less than a mile. So it was a short walk. And could you imagine what this short walk home would have been like? With these guys who have just seen Jesus ascend into heaven, expectantly waiting for the promise of the Spirit. Their, their hopes would have been high. Uh, there would have been a spring in their step. Uh, picture what it would have been like last night, despite how they came back in the fourth quarter a little bit. Uh, what it would have been like to walk out of Beaver Stadium right? With Penn State, Michigan behind them, 7-0 and record, uh, expectantly looking forward to Ohio State as the only thing standing in their way of a Big Ten championship. You might say I'm too confident of a Penn State fan at this point because it was not the most pretty game. But this is only a sliver of what 
this must have been like as they returned home from seeing Jesus ascend. And these followers... Uh, comprised of 11 apostles and many others. It says there's 120 of them there, in fact. And they take this excitement and expectancy to the Lord in prayer. Uh, We read in verse 14 that they were devoting themselves with one accord to prayer. Now, do you think this kind of prayer would have been like some of the prayer meetings that we attend today. Uh, How about this? I won't put this on you. I'll just speak from my own perspective. Some of the prayer meetings that I attend where my thoughts meander, uh, where I try not to awkwardly interrupt the next person that's going to pray, uh, where I am trying just to remember what was asked and what to pray for. I think this prayer meeting would have carried a weight that none before it would have carried. Can you imagine what they have seen and what was promised to them? And now they take it to the Lord in prayer. And as they are meeting together, and as they're praying, and and likely, I would argue, as they're seeking the Old Testament scriptures and trying to see the ways in which Jesus fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament, like he commanded them to do at the end of Luke's gospel in uh, Luke 24, as they're doing this, Peter gets up sometime in these 10 days, and he says this. This is a portion of verse 16 and 20. It'll be on the screen for you. He says, The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So as Peter and the other apostles and people that were there were studying the scriptures as they were seeking the Lord in prayer, two things become apparent to them from the scriptures. And we see these two things mirrored in these two Psalms that are quoted here for us in uh, in verse 20. So the first thing they see from the quotation of Psalm 69 there, that's the first one, They see from the scriptures that Judas had to betray Jesus in order to fulfill the scriptures. You see, Psalm 69 is a psalm about how the enemies of David, uh, the king of Israel, were coming against him. And David was praying for salvation against his enemies. And so what the apostles do is they take this psalm and they say, Jesus is the ultimate king of Israel. He is the ultimate David. And in a sense, Judas is the ultimate earthly enemy, human enemy of the Messiah, the one who betrayed him for money. And they take this psalm and they interpret it in light of Jesus and his uh, betrayer, Judas. And so that seems fairly straightforward, I think. Uh, Judas is an enemy of Jesus, the ultimate enemy of Jesus, and he opposes him. And that's that. I think the second one, though, gets a little bit more complicated. It's not quite as apparent to us here. Um, So the second quotation that let another take his office is from Psalm 109, verse 8. And so the second thing that becomes apparent to them from this is that Judas's apostolic office, so his role as an apostle, had to be filled by another person. And so let's back up 
And to help us get a little bit more context on this, let's read uh, the second half of verse 20 into verses 21 and 22, which will help us understand what's going on here. So it says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Okay. Must become with us a witness to his resurrection. That word must is crucial there. I think we should stop and ask ourselves at this point, why is that necessary that someone take Judas's place? I mean, think about it. It's not as if uh, they can do with 12 people what they couldn't do with 11. Like no matter how good this new guy is, he's not like the savior of the apostles who's like the super apostle who's going to come in and rescue their, uh, their mission that Jesus gives them. And what about the 109 other people that are with them? Uh, you figure they had to factor into this a little bit. I don't think that's the case. And as I studied this passage and, and uh, read other Bible commentators, I think that the thing that became so clear to me from this is that the only way that you can say this is necessary, that he be replaced, is if the number 12 is incredibly important. Okay, now before you go and start to think that I'm one of those uh, crazy people that are going to take numbers and start predicting the end of the world here, just hear me out and try to track with me. It seems as if the only reason why they couldn't continue on with 11 is that there's symbolic significance to the fact that there are 12 apostles. So picture yourself as a Jewish person. The 120 in this room were all Jewish people. They believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament scriptures. Their minds would have instantly been triggered by the number 12 They would have thought, these are 12 men, and there were 12 tribes in Israel in the history of redemption, in the history of the Old Testament. You see, what Jesus is doing here in calling 12 disciples to him originally, the guys that will later become the apostles, he is summing up and restoring the nation of Israel around himself and his person as their Messiah. Okay. Stick with me. I promise this is all going to be worth the payoff and seeing what this passage means. So think about the nation of Israel. So way back at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 12, the nation of Israel is called by God to be his chosen people. And it says that he will bless them so that they might be a blessing to the nations. However, If you read your Old Testament, even for a little bit after that point, you will realize that Israel is is in fact the exact opposite of a blessing to the nations. Uh, Rather than them being a blessing to the nations, being a good influence on the nations, the nations are a terrible influence on Israel, which eventually results in their own destruction and exile. They're taken out of their land and they're punished by God. But God promises Israel that through the prophet Isaiah, he promises that he will renew her and that through the work of his Messiah, he will finally make her a blessing to the nations. 
So one place we see this is Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. So if you look, it'll be on the screen for you. Let's read this together. It says, God says, It is too light a thing that the Messiah should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make the Messiah as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So you see the pattern that's set up here in this verse. So the Messiah does a work to raise up the 12 tribes of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And these 12 tribes will then go and bring back the preserved of Israel. And then Israel will go and be a blessing to the nations. Now, think about what we see happening in the book of Acts. Think about chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus' promise to them before he ascends into heaven. That you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will reach Israel with the gospel. And then from Israel, they will go out and be a blessing to the nations, to the ends of the earth. And it all starts with the 12 tribes of this new Israel this new people of God that are being put together here at the beginning of the book of Acts. Now, I think if if you're anything like me, you've read chapter one before and you're like, you read the ascension and you're like, oh, I'm with that. There's going to be power from on high. They're going to receive the spirit. Jesus goes up. And then you get to this part of the book of Acts and you're like, hmm, that's kind of weird. They cast lots. That's super weird. Ah, chapter two, the spirit comes. Uh, And I would argue, and this has been, honestly, until I prepared to preach this sermon, that's how I read this text. And when I read through my Bible, read through the book of Acts, that's how I read it. But it's kind of like, if we do that, it's kind of like missing a paragraph in a crucial chapter in a novel. So if you miss a paragraph, you can kind of like, I do this all the time when I'm reading, your eyes kind of glaze over and then you're like, wait, what was that about that I just read? And if you keep reading, you can kind of figure out what was in that paragraph. You can sort of make sense of it, but you're going to miss the details. That when you see those details, then the rest of it is going to pop and come alive in the way that the author meant for it. And you're not going to see it until you actually understand that paragraph that you keep skipping over. And I think this uh, section of Acts chapter 1 is kind of like that. But with all of that said, I think maybe even more important than that that we grasp is how vital the role of the apostles is for the book of Acts. And we're going to continue to see this as we go through the book. The apostles are those who these verses define as those who were there from the beginning to the end of Jesus's earthly ministry. So his baptism all the way up until his ascension. And so these were the guys who saw Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and ascension with their own eyes and could testify to it. So so do you see how important it is that these men were the foundation of the household of God, like it says in Ephesians chapter 2. Because these were the guys who saw with their own eyes Christ raised from the dead. They saw with their own eyes Christ working miracles. They've seen it, and they can testify to it in a way that is authoritative. And so what that means for you is that when you open up your Bible— 
And you see these books containing, like we're going to see in the book of Acts, the testimony of the apostles, and written by the apostles, you have in your hands eyewitness accounts of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. See, for the apostles to be central is what it means for our faith to be trustworthy, to have a sure foundation upon which we stand. That's super, super important. Well, then, uh, after this, uh, in the text, this group chooses two who fit this criterion of apostleship. So you have Joseph, called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice, and Matthias. Uh, now, personally, I don't know why they had to cast lots to pick this. Uh, the one guy's name is called Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was called Justice. I think it's an obvious choice that that guy is out. Uh, because every time the apostles were hanging out, It was going to take a long time to say his name whenever he needed to get his attention. Like, he needed just to pick one. You don't need three names, uh, Joseph. So we're just going to call him Joseph from now on. We'll just call him Joseph. But here's the kicker. Joseph, the the church historian Eusebius, uh, this guy, early church historian, records that Joseph, one time he was witnessing to these non-Christians, and uh, he was just like, I need to prove to them that I am someone who Jesus has empowered to, to preach the gospel. And he let himself be bit. Now, this, I don't know if this is correct or not, so just bear with me. But the account says he was bit by a poisonous snake in order to try to prove God's power. And the dude wasn't even harmed. He just walked away from it. And people believed the gospel. So you decide if they made the right or the wrong choice. That's all I'm saying. Uh, that's clearly a joke, uh, by the way. We should not uh, decide. They clearly made the right choice. Um, but... Most of us who come to this text, we focus on this question of casting lots. Right? I mentioned it earlier. It seems so weird to us. Uh, we come to it and we're like, okay, so is this something that I should do? Um, so if I'm trying to decide whether or not to buy this house, should I just kind of roll the dice or pick our different addresses of the three houses I'm looking at in a bag and, and pick it out? It seems weird to us. Um, we think, is there any precedent for this before? Um, where did this come from? Should we do it today? I don't want to give too much time to it because it's not the main point of this passage. But I think that, that we can give a good answer for this. So, yes, casting lots was a, was a common practice in the Old Testament. So the people of Israel would frequently cast lots. And their casting of lots was not, as we would say, just leaving it up to chance. Um, Or in their world, it wasn't some weird way of divining an ancient deity. Uh, Rather, it was a way of placing their trust in God's sovereignty. Um, Proverbs 16 says that uh, the die is cast in the lap, but the Lord controls its outcome. And so it was a way of trusting God's sovereignty. But just because something is recorded for us in a story in the Bible doesn't mean that we should automatically take that as an example for us to follow. And this is something we're going to see continually throughout the book of Acts. So let me just give you another example to try to show you what I mean. So if when we get to Acts chapter 8, we're going to see that there's this Ethiopian man who um, comes in contact with Philip, who is one of the followers of Jesus. He's reading Isaiah 53, just so happens he's reading Isaiah 53 about Jesus' sacrificial death. And he says, man, if only someone could explain it to me. Philip shows up, says, that's about Jesus. Believe in him. He does. And then the Ethiopian man says, hey, there's water right there. I should get baptized. And Philip says, yeah, you should. And they go and baptize him immediately. 
The question is, is that the way we should do baptism today? We'll address that when we get to chapter 8. But here in Acts chapter 2, I think it's significant with casting lots that it occurs here and then that's it in the book of Acts and the New Testament. So before the Spirit comes, they cast lots. Seems like after the Spirit comes, they don't cast lots because there's not a need to cast lots because they have the Spirit who will guide them in wisdom. They have the fullness of the Spirit who will help them in making decisions. So I think for us today, this side of Pentecost, I would say uh, keep the dice in your pocket. And, uh, and if you're trying to decide a big life decision, trust God, pray, seek counsel, and then make a wise choice. That's, that's all I'll say about that. Well, with all of that in front of us, all these kind of strange uh, mattress on the living room floor kind of details about this passage. The, the question is, what does all of this say to us? What does all of this mean for us? And to begin to answer this question, I, I just want us to look at the people who were in that room, the people who comprised that 120. So first, uh, there are the 11 apostles, the disciples of Jesus. And chief among the apostles, the one who's going to lead the early church here in the early books, uh, book of Acts, is Peter. And think about this. Peter, uh, the guy who spoke and Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. Peter, the guy who right after he said, Jesus, I will never betray you. I will never deny you, goes and denies Jesus three times on the very night that he was crucified. And then there are the 10 other disciples of Jesus who are there. The guys who, as Jesus was pouring his heart out the night before he was crucified, giving them the first Lord's Supper, these guys immediately afterwards in Luke 22 start jockeying for position and trying to say, who's the greatest? And they're fighting and they're proud and they want to know who is the best. As well, Jesus' own brothers are in that room, which Mark chapter 3 records for us. They thought Jesus was crazy and they didn't believe in him while he was living. And what this shows us is that all of us have our own goals and plans for this life, which do not correspond with the plan of God to bless all the nations in his son. And we see this in the lives of these followers of Jesus prior to this. And we are all like the apostles in that upper room before Jesus was crucified, who argue about our own job pursuits and fight for human praise while Jesus is standing right in front of us. Or we are like Judas, who so wrapped up in our pursuit of money that we would betray the invaluable treasure of knowing Christ to our own destruction. For some of us, it's career plans For others of us, it's a desire to have a family or what you might perceive to be the perfect family. And yet for others, it's this desire to have a spouse. And we pursue these things that aren't necessarily bad in themselves, but we pursue these things at all costs while ignoring God's bigger plan to use his people to bless the world with his good news of joy. And yet... These 
disciples, these followers of Jesus are here in Acts chapter 1, being obedient, seeking the Lord in prayer, studying the Old Testament scriptures, and are about to be unleashed on the world for the glory of God. So what changed? What changed in those 40 days between when Jesus was resurrected and Jesus ascended into heaven? And I would say this, what changed for them is that they encountered Jesus. You might say they encountered Jesus all throughout their life. Uh, What do you mean by that? And I would say, yes, they did, but they encountered Jesus, the teacher, not Jesus, the savior. Here they encountered Jesus, the savior. They encountered not Jesus, the miracle worker, but Jesus, the resurrected Lord. Not just Jesus, the man, but Jesus, the very son of God. And this encounter changed everything for them. And it can change everything for us too. See, a true encounter with the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Christ is what will propel us into service of his plan to bless all the nations. And look at what this Savior can do. This is my favorite part about this passage. He takes this ragtag bunch of doubters and deniers and skeptics and self-lovers, and he unifies them in 40 days for testifying to the nations. Like, he takes these boneheads, and in 40 days, he has them obedient to him and ready to turn the world upside down. Think about what he could do with us boneheads. I mean, seriously, it's amazing. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. We will never reach anyone with good news that we simply think is okay news. That's not going to happen. We need to be so wowed by Jesus that we can't help but get caught up in this plan. See, we can't just will ourselves into this. Uh, We can't just muster up a love for Jesus and his plan by coming to church and giving money faithfully to missions. It has to start with you believing that the gospel is good news for yourself. If you don't do that, you will never see yourself as part of God's plan to bless the nations. And so church, I would ask us, have we truly encountered Christ Jesus, the Lord, Have you seen him crucified in your place, taking the punishment that your sins deserve? Have you seen him resurrected, promising that you one day will be raised from the dead? And have you seen him ascended as the king of the universe who rules all things and who pleads your cause before the Father, ensuring your salvation at this very moment? Until you see that as good news for you, you will never get on board with God's plan to bless the nations. And so church, I pray that today, in a way that you have never experienced before, that these trustworthy apostolic records of Jesus that are given to us in the scriptures, that they would, by God's spirit, come alive to you. And that you would encounter Jesus resurrected and ascended, not just the one who did some cool miracles and who teaches some good things, but the one who can actually bring you salvation. It's the one who can actually disrupt your plans and completely stop you in your tracks and redirect your life. Well then, what does it look like when the people of God actually encounter the risen and ascended Christ? What does that church 
look like. I think we get a good picture of that in Acts 1.14. Look, look at this verse with me as we close. It says, And all these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Now notice two characteristics about this prayer. It's unified, it's of one accord, and it is devout. They were devoting themselves to prayer. Or another way that you could translate that is they were busily engaged in prayer with one another. This is not normal prayer. At least it's not prayer as I have experienced it in my own life. And I'm not saying that to my own credit. I'm saying that to my own detriment. A true encounter with the risen Lord produces another category of prayer altogether. A prayer that's focused on God pouring out his blessing of his spirit upon us, empowering us with his spirit to reach the lost for the glory of his name. So again, think about these disciples. Where were they 40 days ago? At least three of them. They were in the garden of Gethsemane with Jesus and they couldn't hold their sorry eyes open. They couldn't keep their eyes open long enough to pray. And Jesus has to keep coming back and checking on him in his greatest hour of need. And here they are with one mind devoted to prayer because they had seen the risen and ascended Christ. And church, if we want, if we truly want to see something like Acts chapter 2 happen in our church and in our city, if we want to see the kind of 3,000 people in a day power of God, what we call that is revival. If we want to see that, it has to start with the people that are devoted in one mind to prayer, or it will never happen. Because we'll think that we did it on our own. It has to start with the people in the posture of prayer who say, Lord, we have nothing, and we need you desperately. Uh, English preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, when speaking of prayer and revival, said this. I love this. He said, it seems to me that there's no hope for revival until you and I and all of us have reached the stage in which we begin to forget ourselves a little and to be concerned for the church, for God's body, his people here on earth. If I were to paraphrase that, I would say, if we are truly concerned for God's church and its expansion across the globe, then we should drop our goals and drop down on our knees and do something about it. We should, in a time when our church feels like it's in transition, uh, we're hiring a new pastor, things have been changing over the last few months, I would say this is a perfect time to plead with God that he would bring revival to our church and to our city and ultimately to our country and to the world. So think about this. Think about what it would mean for our church because of our love for Jesus to truly devote ourselves to prayer. What would it mean for that prayer room downstairs to be packed out both services with people who are so in love with Jesus that they want to give up an entire hour and a half of their morning to go in there and devote themselves with one mind to prayer that God would work in our worship service to bring people to Jesus? Or what would it look like for us as a church, as an example, to begin a prayer service, seeking what might God might have us do in the city of Harrisburg, in our region? 
Or what would it mean for our small groups to commit to truly praying for missionary partners in America here and around the world? Or what would it mean for your family to take five, two, ten minutes, whatever it is for you, after dinner, and say, we are going to pray for our neighbors in our neighborhood, those who don't know Jesus around us? So church, if if we want the power of Acts 2, if we want to see revival, if we want to see people know Jesus like they do in Acts chapter 2, then we cannot ignore the gritty, devoted prayer of Acts chapter 1 that precedes that. And before all of that, the prerequisite to all of that is that we would have a vision of Jesus that absolutely stops our plans dead in their tracks and shifts us towards the goal of God being glorified by him saving people from all across the globe. This started with the 12 apostles, and based on that foundation, God's plan continues to the present. And there's a lot of differences between us and the apostles, but there's one common denominator that could be the case, I pray is the case, between us and and the apostles, and that is pure and utter amazement at what God has done for us in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do pray that we would realize that nothing will happen apart from us recognizing our own bankruptcy. And so God, we pray together that you would work among us a spirit that we have not known in this church. A spirit that's new and fresh and exciting. A spirit that that wants to seek you in prayer because we are so enamored with Jesus. God, I pray that you would Help us to pray. Help us to truly believe that when we pray, you listen and truly believe that prayer is your means by which you accomplish your purposes. So God, as a church, I pray that we would love you and love your plan of salvation and love those people around us so much that we would actually get on our knees and that we would do something about it. So God, grant us that by your spirit, Pour out your spirit on us fresh today, that that might take place in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.